0: Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we took a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California.
1: And I'm Brendan Steidl, your other co-host and communication specialist in government, technology and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows.
0: We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions.
1: Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue.
0: Today is Sunday, February twenty eighth, twenty twenty one. Twenty one. Last day of the month. No leap year this year. Yeah, short month. Which is perfectly fine,
1: if only all the months last year were as short.
0: All the months last year should have been a week.
1: Yes. Instead, they were two years.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, today on Polylog, we're going to look at the shows I looked at, which was Fox News Sunday, Face the Nation, and Meet the Press. Brendan, what did you watch?
1: I looked at State of the Union and This Week.
0: And what are you talking about today?
1: Oh, my goodness. I have some very strongly held beliefs. Related <laughs> Only to, this
0: week? Aww. <laughs> related to
1: a little bit about COVID-19. A lot, I would say, about the relief bill.
0: Yeah, me too.
1: And yes, that's, those are the main things I would say.
0: Yeah, uh, I thought there was some interesting, most of my stuff is COVID related, but in interesting ways. There's like a school conversation, there's a relief bill conversation, there's a you can't do your job conversation, and then one surprise slash not surprise, why can't men have decent conversations?
1: Mm. I'm also talking briefly about Saudi Arabia.
0: Oh, I'm not bringing Saudi Arabia, so I'm glad you're bringing it up.
1: But, Naomi, why don't we begin with quality questionable? What was of high quality to you this week?
0: High quality was an interview that I saw on Face the Nation. Margaret Brennan interviewed Democratic Governor Andy Bashir. He is the governor of the state of Kentucky. There's a lot of interesting things he's doing. But the part that I found most valuable is the conversation that Margaret Brennan had with him regarding schools. Now, apparently, Kentucky is one of the few states that are going against CDC recommendations and as actually prioritizing teachers to get them vaccinated to get schools opened. It was kind of the most like, let's see what someone is really doing about schools and why they're doing it and, and how they're able to achieve that, that I think we haven't seen enough on the shows. So take a listen to this kind of first answer where Governor Bashir talks about schools and really why he thinks in the state of Kentucky, they believe the future, mainly children, should be prioritized.
2: I know you set March 1st uh, as the recommended deadline for schools to reopen. Uh, and those teachers who haven't gotten their second dose might be able to wait a little longer, but you have pushed them to the front of the line ahead of other essential workers so that they could get those shots. How politically difficult was it to do that?
3: Well, in Kentucky, we determined that we needed to prioritize uh, both our present, uh, those that were suffering the most and most likely to die from COVID, as well as our future, getting our children back in school. I'm not just a governor, I'm also a dad of a middle schooler and an elementary school uh, student. And so I've seen the impacts that this had. So we pushed our teachers to the front of the line, moving them up uh, faster than the CDC or other states had. And we're about to be the first state to fully vaccinate all of our educators. Uh, We have all but about seven school districts already back in some form of in-person. Those districts are gonna expand. And now we have a commitment from all our remaining districts to get that done, too. It's important we do it in a safe way, that also builds confidence within our educators themselves.
0: So this is actually really interesting because there has been such a range, like a drastic, wide range of responses that states have considered for schools. Here in California, there's a lot of places that haven't opened up. Some school districts are starting to consider some in-person starting in March or April. Some places in the Bay Area are saying they might not have in-person until the fall. I mean, it is just like a total cluster. And parents and educators and people who work, you know, everyone has been struggling trying to figure out what they can, not just survive and maintain their jobs and their sanities, but how to plan for the future. And I thought it was really interesting how Governor Bashir is kind of saying for us The future of our states, not just like our immediate life is important, but making sure our kids are educated.
1: Yeah, I thought that was an extremely powerful case he made. I want to hear more of the case, right? I want to hear why he felt like what's different about you? What's different about Kentucky? What's different about, you know, to make you make this decision and so many others not to make it.
0: Interesting you say that because the follow up question that Margaret Brennan has is, specifically about teachers' union and that Kentucky is a right-to-work state, which really weakens the power of unions. And Margaret Brennan wanted to know if that is why it was easier to do this.
2: I ask you how politically difficult it was because I often hear from governors that they can't prioritize teachers over other essential workers. Uh, The allegation often is having to do with fear of unions. Did the fact that you are a right-to-work state, one where union membership is not um, compulsory compulsory. Did that make a difference?
3: No, I don't think so. We have strong uh, associations for our teachers, but uh, the way we look at this is everything's difficult in COVID. Even the concept of what's an essential worker is one person more essential than another. For us, this was a workforce issue. It was uh, development for our children, scholastically, emotionally, uh, and, and socially. And it was about um, getting back to some form of normal while we are still Uh, very careful. We made this call early on. We stuck Mm -hmm. to it. And no matter what you decide during COVID, some uh, are are going to uh, oppose it. But it's about trying to do the right thing, uh, the best thing for your people, and then to let the consequences be what they'll be.
0: So I so wish that Margaret Brennan hadn't asked anything else, any other topic and just stuck with this whole school conversation. She could have explored so many angles of it. I'm eager to hear conversations about school infrastructure, about ventilation, about the age and support for not just teachers, but all school employees. I'm interested in hearing about social distancing on school buses. You know, there's so many facets of education. And I... I'm of the mind we should be exploring all options and we should be talking about all options so parents and educators alike can be working together trying to figure out what works for any given community.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting how Margaret Brennan, you know, found one thing where she was like, oh, maybe the teachers union, that's some factor that makes this instance different from other places around the country. But he's basically saying, no, that's not the case. And in fact, uh, I don't really fully understand how the union thing would have gotten in the way. And we heard from one of the leaders of the teachers union on Meet the Press just a few weeks ago, she was applauding all the states that had prioritized teachers to get vaccinated before schools opened.
0: Yeah, but in general, I appreciate the focus to have a conversation with a government official who is doing something different around schools wants to talk about it on national television, and she wants to use the airtime to explore that, right? There needs to be more of that and less of, hey, Dr. Fauci, when can my kid go to school? And he's like, I don't know, where does your kid live? I don't like, not that Dr. Fauci has responded like that. But I feel like that's been the <laughs> approach of a lot of these journalists talking to public health officials, public health experts, and just like demanding an answer on schools where it's actually like very nuanced to a region, to the strategies and the workforce needs and the school needs. Like, it's just. Well, exactly. And, and I'm not saying like you, you talk to every school district superintendent, but like parse it out. At least exactly,
1: try. Exactly. Strategically choose. If you're going to have this conversation, say, who's the best person? Who's an example that's doing a really good job or a really poor or job? Or doing
0: something interesting. right?
1: That we can talk about, use as an example, a model, something newsy, but something that we can learn from rather than just whatever random person you happen to have on throwing in a school's question.
0: Exactly. That's the part that I'm just done and over with. Yep. Brendan, did you have something quality you wanted to share with us?
1: Yeah, I'm going to just play it. This is from This Week, Introduction to the Panel, George Stephanopoulos. Take a listen. If you're a frequent Polylog listener, and Naomi, I know you are, you will <laughs> you uh-huh. will recognize why I made this a quality moment.
4: Still Donald Trump's part of the CPAC conference. We're getting ready to see him today. We're going to talk about that on a roundtable. joined by Rahm Emanuel, Chris Christie, the CEO of Democracy for America, Yvette Simpson, and Republican strategist Alice Stewart. Uh, he is the former president, so we're going to get to him later. let to begin with President Biden and this COVID package. We saw the difficulties he's facing right now in the Senate. You have senators like Hirono saying minimum wage has to be in the bill. You lose one Democratic senator, it goes down. How does he solve that problem?
0: So did you catch it? That Chris Christie didn't go first?
1: No, no. Although you could say that is a, that is a highlight. <laughs> That's a quality. It was when George... He started out by talking a bit about Donald Trump. He mentioned him because there was a clip right before that. And then he said, well, he's, as in Trump, the former president, we're going to get to him later. Rom, we must begin with President Biden and this COVID relief bill. Last week, we were criticizing the shows for spending so much time talking about Trump. And in fact, literally saying the word Trump more than the word Biden by multiples. And so this was actually great to hear. It's kind of exactly the point we were trying to make, that Trump might be out there. He might be doing stuff like he did give that speech today, and it was exactly what we thought it would be. But the top priority is the current president, the current actual authority he has, the efforts he's making, particularly on COVID.
0: Yeah, I'm... Good for George. Overall, on my shows, I felt like there was a lot of Trump talk.
1: Oh, I'm not saying that there wasn't too much Trump talk. Yeah, <laughs> I'm saying prioritizing and recognizing and telling your viewers that hey, Trump is out there, but we are not going to make it the first thing we talk about because he's the former president.
0: Right, right. That's that, important. That makes sense. An
1: important statement. But Naomi, it sounds like you're already questioning my quality moment. You're ready for your questionable oh, moment. Oh my gosh.
0: So, I have a questionable moment that also, I'm kind of curious as to how it went on your shows. It didn't. <laughs> no, I don't know what it did. But... was m- that Ron Howard voice? <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> From Arrested Development. <laughs> so good.
0: I <laughs> could just hear, like, Ron Howard's narr- narrator voice, like, in all our pauses. <laughs> That'd be great. But... My questionable moment. Okay, so my questionable moment is from a moment on the panel on Meet the Press. And it was this barely blip of a conversation that Chuck Todd had regarding Governor Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo is the governor of New York and there are currently. Yeah. He there's some new allegations of sexual misconduct and harass, maybe harassment from two former staffers by Governor Cuomo. And I'm just... Take a listen to Chuck's question, question and a half about this. And I'm curious as to what your thoughts are and if this came up on any of your shows. Popular.
5: I want to shift gears here to the uh, new allegation against Andrew Cuomo. A second woman has come out uh, indicating, um, uh, some, uh, that, uh, that Governor Cuomo made her feel, uh, uncomfortable, uh, in many ways. Here's his statement from last night where in an odd, where he basically confirms at least some of the substance of the conversations they had when she came to me and opened up about being a sexual assault survivor and how it shaped her and her ongoing efforts to create an organization that empowered her voice to help other survivors. I tried to be supportive and helpful. Ms. Bennett's initial impression was right. I was trying to be a mentor to her. I never made advances toward Ms. Bennett, nor did I ever intend to act in any way that was inappropriate. The last thing I would ever wanted uh, was to make her feel any of the things that are being reported. Carol Lee, That statement to me was pretty eyebrow raising of itself because it seemed to confirm at least some of the substance and certainly uh, to bring up her own uh, sexual assault seemed to be highly inappropriate.
6: Yeah, Chuck, and it's not very san- different and stands out from statements we've seen from officials in the past who've been accused of an out- similar allegations where there's an outright denial. That's not at all, as you point out, what we see here. And this is something that Democrats are going to be asked about. The White House is going to be asked about.
5: Gene there's- Robinson, I mean, this Democratic Party of 2021, can you imagine A- Andrew Cuomo surviving in it?
1: It's, it's, it's kind of tough right now. I mean, look, I've, I've been in management, right. And I've, I have managed, uh, and mentored, uh, female sub- subordinates and, and have done so without any reference to their sexual sex lives. I mean, and that, that's, so that's kind of, that should be a no brainer. Yeah. Uh, and it should have been a no brainer,
7: um, years and years and years ago. And it certainly is now. Uh, so this is a problem for him. Yeah. It's a I think it's a big
5: one.
0: Okay. So here you hear Chuck Todd with Carol Lee. She's an NBC News White House correspondent and you also hear a couple of sentences from Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson. Now my issue with this brief conversation one, there's multiple. One, it seems like Chuck Todd is so profoundly uncomfortable to even talk about these allegations that Andrew Cuomo has against him right now and kind of stumbling through his words. Also, at no point do they actually describe what these allegations exactly. are.
1: That's what was missing. We heard his story. We hear, we didn't Governor's, hear her story. Yeah,
0: we hear Cuomo's like full, super awkward ass response and saying he didn't mean to make someone uncomfortable without actually giving the time and air to what these women actually experienced, according to them, right? So then the whole conversation is, what's Cuomo gonna do about it?
1: Right, it's Can all about- he
0: survive it? What's the White House gonna say about Cuomo? Everything is suddenly about this, f- is about Cuomo and- it's not about the allegation, right? Which is more than one person. Um, and I don't mean like more than one allegation. It's like the supposed perpetrator of this abuse or misconduct and the victim who received it, right? And so when you center the conversation on the person who did harm, then...
1: And you literally don't even give voice. Zero. To
0: the Zero victim. voice. So... How did, did, one, did the Cuomo allegations come up in any of the shows you watched, Brendan? And then two, what were your kind of like general impressions?
1: Oh, they were all so brief.
0: Yeah, see, and this is my, like, I actually, at first when I heard this, I was like, why are we even talking about this? They're not even saying anything. And then on... On this panel that we just heard. Right, when I heard it on Meet the Press. And then when I, it 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 was mentioned zero times on... Face the Nation, and Fox News Sunday. Cuomo was brought up, but not because of these allegations, but just because another governor hates him. And I actually didn't mind the fact that it wasn't brought up. What bothered me here is you're, you're almost doing lip service to, like, another Me Too story or, like, another story of mis- or sexual misconduct, but you're not actually doing anything. You're not actually saying what happened. You're not actually talking about the issues uh, that New York State has to kind of consider. Because inter- Cuomo had this like, oh, so stupid. Like, try to suggest who should do the independent investigation, which was like a whole...
1: And now it's the Attorney General who will yeah, be leading that.
0: Which she essentially was like, demanded. My whole point being is, don't act like you're going to have a conversation do a real crappy job about it, and then expect people to applaud you that you had a crappy conversation. I am not here for that. I don't care for that kind of, like, okay, I'm just gonna be blunt. Like, if men think they're gonna be, like, allies or, like, stand with women and, like, not tolerate this, then, like, Be equipped to handle this conversation or invite someone to do a good job or invite someone to facilitate a conversation or to help the viewers understand what of the different angles they should be looking at. Like, this isn't the most newsworthy story. Of course not. That's not what I'm, I'm not saying it should be like the front and center lead story of all the shows. Like, not at all. But don't do such a crappy job. Like, it's just... So insulting. Anyway, nothing like a tiny moment in a mediocre panel to make me all sorts of enraged.
1: Well, it's just this has been many years and it's unfortunate that there still aren't better standards standard operating procedures for dealing with crises like this because it should be pretty obvious at this point that this is going to keep happening and we're yeah. going to keep seeing stories like this and the media is going to need to keep leading and hopefully begin leading intelligence discussions on the topic. Because,
0: like, this is the thing. You either have a man ill-equipped to handle a conversation about sexual misconduct or you have elite or establishment media being very hands-off or so vague that it's generous to Governor Cuomo, right? And all it does is, it just gives me the same like icky feeling of like white people who say racism is bad, but like can't handle any substantive conversation about institutional racism, or what that means policy wise in our country, or what that means generationally for black community, like who can't really talk about racism, but are just like, oh, yeah, it's real bad if you're like means to black people like that. That's the kind of effect that it reminds me of, of people who are doing lip service without engaging with the story at all.
1: I think the point I will make throughout this episode is that there's a lot of that not engaging with the actual story
0: on a lot of topics, unfortunately. Yeah. Brendan, what's your questionable moment?
1: So my questionable moment regards Anthony Fauci. It's not necessarily him. I actually think he provides more information than we've seen before related to COVID-19 vaccination and transmissibility. So I appreciated kind of what he said here. My questionable moment, my questionable, that's hard to say, you know.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: My questionable moment is, what George asks and what he doesn't ask. Take a listen.
4: We don't know a lot about how the vaccines affect transmission, whether they truly prevent transmission. So for people who have been vaccinated, what can they do? How should they still be careful?
7: Well, you still you should still be careful, uh, George, that you, you, ha- you could conceivably have, because the end point of the vaccine efficacy trial is preventing symptomatic disease, which means that potentially, theoretically, and maybe in reality, you're gonna have infection that you don't get any clinical manifestation. So you could be protected from disease and still have virus. If that's the case, then that's the reason why you hear us all, all the public health officials saying to wear a mask. And the reason is essentially to protect other people from occasionally, you may inadvertently infect someone else, even though you are protected. That's the reason. Now, when you get two people that are vaccinated and protected together, like in a home setting, you could have two people that you would not need to do that. We're working with the CDC right now on trying to get updated, reasonable recommendations of what we can tell vaccinated people to do as you get more and more people vaccinated. But the reason we say mask, and sometimes people don't understand that and think it's being too rigid, there will be a time, and I believe it will be reasonably soon, when we will know exactly whether or not a vaccinated person really has such a low level or none at all of virus in their nasopharynx. That will be based on data. We have some preliminary data for some Israeli studies that the level of virus in the nasopharynx of vaccinated people is extremely low. If that's the case and the future studies show that it's that low, then you'll be pulling back on some of the restrictions. But you want to do it based on data, George, not on guessing. The CDC
4: experts also today to discuss which population groups should receive priority for the
7: vaccines.
1: So that was actually a pretty robust answer from Anthony Fauci on that issue. But it just screams for the follow-up, and lots of follow-ups, actually. I mean, Naomi, maybe you could think of like what, what what you would like to see as a follow-up to that.
0: Well, what are we seeing from that Israeli study that is promising? Mm-hmm. What are we hoping to be replicated here?
1: Exactly. Why, why does the data from that study not enough for us right now?
0: What does that mean in prioritizing our own follow-up study?
1: When will all f- our follow-up study be available? And I think... What frustrates me at the heart of this, the other question that I think should be asked is when are those guidelines for vaccinated
0: people coming out? Approximately this quarter, summer. 2025. (laughs) This is a foot exercise.
1: (laughs) But the point, the, the thing that bothers me isn't that George Stephanopoulos didn't ask my preferred follow-up or your preferred follow-up or one of these many follow-ups. And not even that he didn't ask a follow-up because sometimes, you know, Fauci talked here for two minutes, it's pretty long. What frustrated me in this exchange was the lack of urgency from George. And it begins right at the beginning of his question. You know, you go back to the start of that question that we heard George ask at the beginning of the clip. He begins it by saying, We don't know a lot about how the vaccines affect transmission, whether they truly prevent transmission. So for people who've been vaccinated, what can they do? How should they still be careful? He kind of begins it with the premise that the data isn't there. We don't know a lot about it, but actually Fauci does know some about it, right? And he he shares that here. I feel like George is kind of giving him an out. He's making it easy for Fauci by saying, you know, the the, the data's not in yet. I know that you don't have the information, but what should people do? Like, he's kind of laying the groundwork for Fauci to be able to walk around this question. He's not treating this with urgency. And there is urgency. There's urgency around what people can do now and stay safe. And there's urgency around so many other points. And so that's my overall questionable. It's not George's behavior during this particular answer or his lack of follow-up here, or even this interview in isolation. It's the lack of urgency we've seen on almost all these shows, maybe Save, Face the Nation, around the issue of COVID-19. That used to be an urgent
0: issue. I guess I would say urgency beyond mortality, right? Yeah. Like, I think all the shows do find the gravity of loss like very heavy, right? And they talk about how many people we've lost and and how many people have been sick and the number of infections. I, I think they get that. But at the same time, they don't fully understand that people do not know how to live. Like We don't know how to have a functional society right. as the virus continues.
1: Yes. And these are the officials making the rules, right? right. So we need to have urgency in these questions like we used to have, because there are still so many urgent questions. I think these hosts and these producers and the country at large has indeed COVID fatigue. My God, how long have we been talking about this? It seems like every week we're asking the same questions, but we don't have to ask the same questions. And these are urgent issues that demand answers. You know, what about contact tracing? What kind of information do we have on how the virus is really being spread right now? When was the last time we talked about whether it's in being spread in grocery stores, whether it's being spread just in homes, whether it's, you know, what do we know about that? Or even Where's the, the variants.
0: They talk about variants like they're all the same right. and they're not. Exactly. They're not.
1: <laughs> and and do we have better data on the the amount of variants out there? Because remember, our country did a piss-poor job of tracking the genetic variations of this virus. So where are the urgent questions about the Biden administration's and Fauci's responsibility to get to the bottom of that and to improve that? Where is the urgency on asking about ventilation in the public guidelines? Why are more places out there in the world wiping down their tables rather than dealing with ventilation when we know that ventilation is more important now than wiping down tables, that this is more a respiratory virus than it is about droplets, right? Why, why aren't we asking about the lack of a federal website for people to sign up for the vaccine yet? Why aren't we asking about public information campaigns that we were promised would be out there telling people to take the vaccine and fighting that vaccine hesitancy. You know, Naomi, you and I were driving on the highway today and I pointed out to you a billboard. It was the first piece of public information I saw out there that said, get vaccinated. It just said, I think that's all it said, was get vaccinated. And it was from a local community hospital. That was it. It just said, get vaccinated. Didn't have any case or whatever, but it was there. And I said, oh my God. Here we are when millions of people have already been vaccinated. Millions more are qualified to get vaccinated. We have communities, often communities of color, that have great hesitancy to get vaccinated, even though a lot of the members of that community could get it. But where are the public information campaigns? Why aren't there urgent questions about that? So anyway, I could go on and on. I want to see the urgency from these hosts about the questions that are still out there and still matter every day.
0: Yeah, and listen, I mean, I guess I would add to, to trying to like, I feel like we, we're both kinda <laughs> hot about our questionable, the public health officials are on the shows, right? That is an improvement. There yes. was a period where we weren't hearing from Any Dr. Burks, Dr. Fauci, which in retrospect, like thinking back about that is insanity we are hearing from them but the conversation is so not tangible information that can help people make day-to-day decisions and yes and if you want to fight the fatigue people need to feel like they're at least working their way back to normal right that's the like it just seems like hang in there hang in there we're almost at the end and it's all about just like staying the course rather than this is what we need to do now. And when we get through this, we can do X. And when we get through X, we can do Y. And like giving people things to look forward to and things to work towards, uh, like (laughs) much more reachable milestones. And so, I don't know, just any like behavioral therapist would tell you this. (laughs) It's like, I don't understand why this is like.
1: These reports have become way too much like weather updates and it's like these well,
0: reports being the public health sh- what we're seeing on the sunday shows there are other places that are doing this really well yes we've put them on the show notes before but, yes. but uh, i will much. add those instagram accounts again that have been really helpful for me
1: the hosts treat this too much like they're checking in with a meteorologist on what's going on with that weather rather than this is an urgent crisis we've got people on the ground you're the official in charge and we're going to pummel you with questions because we need to know what the hell to do and what is going on next and what the hell you're doing to keep people safe. Naomi, let's move on since we have other segments on this show.
0: <laughs> you don't want to just like rant back and forth because I could also completely redo my agenda and just do that. <laughs>
1: no, no, no. We're going to keep moving forward. We need progress. So why don't we begin with something not COVID related? Do you have anything not COVID related? In either your thing that stood out in politics or a thing that stood out in journalism?
0: Well, it's Just about... for co- a brief... Reprieve. It's about COVID relief. You don't have anything? No, they're both about... They're both essentially COVID. What do you have? Continue. What do you have? Do you okay. have a non-COVID? I do have something All right, let's non-COVID. go with you. Okay.
1: We're going to start with journalism. Okay. This is something that stood out to me in journalism. Okay. And it's the issue of Saudi Arabia. So, as we know, as we covered on Polylog, talked about extensively... Permanent American resident and employee of the Washington Post, columnist, journalist Jamal Khashoggi, was murdered brutally by, we discovered pretty shortly afterwards, Saudi Arabia at the behest, Mohammed bin Salman, crown prince of Saudi Arabia, essentially the next person in line for the throne, often referred to as MBS. This was during the Donald Trump era, as we know. Donald Trump and his administration did not release a lot of information about it, kind of denied a lot of the responsibility that went to MBS in Saudi Arabia. This was outrageous to many on both sides of the aisle. Joe Biden, during the campaign, like a lot of Democrats, called this out, said that he would hold Saudi Arabia responsible. Part of that was the release this week of a report that had been created during the Trump administration basically pointing out that MBS was responsible. So while that was kind of a long description, it was a description missing from a lot of the Sunday shows. However, I did think that there were some interesting discussions around this issue because of Joe Biden's response, or in some people's eye, lack of response to that report. Here's Jen Psaki, White House press secretary on State of the Union, being questioned by Dana Bash, and explaining why Joe Biden did not necessarily do what we assumed he would do now that he's president in terms of holding Saudi Arabia responsible.
8: Candidate Biden, you heard there, said he would hold Saudi Arabia accountable. Now that he's president, he's imposed no travel ban, no asset freeze, no criminal charges, and most importantly, no sanctions directly on the crown prince himself. Why not? Well, first,
9: Anna, from the first day of the administration, we have been crystal clear at every level, from the president on down, we're going to recalibrate this relationship and turn the page from the last four years. And that means ending our support for the war in Yemen, doing more to address the humanitarian crisis, and ensuring that we are uh, holding to account the actions, the human rights abuses of this government, by word and by action. The release of this report, which was held back over the last four years, is part of that, making that clear to the public. But we've also taken a number of steps through the Treasury Department, through the State Department, to sanction the deputy head of intelligence, to sanction the revolutionary uh, forces in, in Saudi Arabia, and to make clear that we will never let this happen happen again. And, and that's a message we've clearly well, but, sent over
8: the last few days. OK, so but you're talking about the people who are under the crown prince and they are being punished. So isn't punishing them like punishing the hitman and not the mob boss who actually put out the hit?
9: Well, first, Anna, historically uh, and even in recent history, Democratic and Republican administrations, there have not been sanctions put in place for the leaders of foreign governments where we have diplomatic relations and even where we don't have diplomatic relations. And we believe there is more effective ways to uh, make sure this doesn't happen again and to also be able to leave room to work with the Saudis on areas where there is mutual agreement, where there is interest, national interest for the United States. That is what diplomacy looks like. That is what a a complicated global engagement looks like.
1: So like a lot of people, I saw the headline last week that Joe Biden wasn't doing a lot against Saudi Arabia to hold them accountable concerning. And I wanted to understand what was Joe Biden's position on this. And I felt like the first kind of inkling of it really did come from this answer from Jen Psaki. And I appreciated Dana Bash's strong and urgent follow ups on this issue that we heard asking, What the hell is going on here? Why are you just punishing the people who carried it out rather than the person who ordered it? And Saki's answer is fascinating, that historically, it's not a thing. We don't place sanctions on leaders of foreign governments, especially those we have to work with. It's not something you do in diplomacy. So yes, you're going to do different things for those who actually carried it out versus the people who ordered it. That's just the nature of diplomacy. However, there are other things that are being done, and they nod towards the relationship continuing to be recalibrated. So I thought that was a really fascinating look into the intersection here of diplomacy and accountability as it relates to this horrible, brutal murder.
0: A couple things stand out to me. On this story, first and foremost, I think it's very telling that the White House sent out Jen Psaki to the Sunday shows to talk about this and also to talk about the COVID relief. But she is extremely effective at her job, and I think could have really this line of questioning to someone less competent than Jen Psaki would have been really difficult to withstand. And I think Jen Psaki does a good job to try to say like we don't think it's acceptable. This is very like a very precarious situation. And I don't know, being strong with doing nothing, (laughs) essentially, which is what but it feels like what the Biden administration is doing. So that's one. I think the other piece that stands out to me is, I don't know, I just sometimes feel like if our understanding of foreign diplomacy and just news around the world was better in this country, I I think there would be more outrage for the Khashoggi murder. And I think it would be a bigger story. I think it's almost like the White House is banking on people not caring very long about this.
1: Oh, interesting take, very cynical take. But I do agree that I, I, I do agree that it would be more of an issue if we had a greater understanding of what this.
0: Yeah, and I—I I mean, I don't mean it is a cynical take, and I don't mean this like Biden specifically. I think like any, literally any administration would hope or expect that the American public are not going to hold on to this story very long, which is really unfortunate because it is literally a legal permanent resident employed by one of the most important papers in our country talking about an important foreign diplomacy issue. And he was murdered, like yeah.
1: assassinated.
0: Yeah, that that's what happened.
1: Well, and speaking of that, that's why I want to highlight the next clip I have, which is from this week. At the end of the episode, they spoke with the Washington Post editorial page editor who worked very, very closely with Jamal Khashoggi. This is Fred Hyatt. And he made an excellent point about why, maybe not sanctions, you know, but we need to do something very dramatic to send a message about how unacceptable this behavior is from any government.
4: You know, the administration is trying to strike a balance. In the words of Secretary of State Blinken, they don't want to rupture the relationship. Even you and your editorial page acknowledge that we need Saudi Arabia's cooperation with counterterrorism, with the stability of global oil markets. Can we afford to rupture the relationship over this?
3: There's a bigger issue here going on all around the world, which is dictators like MBS and Putin and Xi Jinping are not only repressing their own people, but they're reaching beyond their borders to harass, intimidate, kidnap, and assassinate. And it's a way of striking fear at home and abroad. Uh, And if the United States and its fellow democracies don't stand up against that, then we're going to live in a world where nobody feels safe anywhere, not even inside the borders of the United States. I would say that's a more important principle even than the alliance with Saudi Arabia.
0: Such, such an important point. And I think the comparison to Xi Jinping is is notable because yeah. there's been atrocities there. That, in China. In China with zero consequence. Zero. And
1: China has reached into the U.S. to stifle speech, as we saw from the, I think it was the National Basketball Association and whether they would say anything negative about what China has been doing in the Uyghur camps. Which is genocide, right? And so there are tr- real, active instances of what Fred Hyatt is describing here. It is a powerful case against the argument that we heard from Saki that oh well, there are rules, and you don't, you know, in the rules of diplomacy, you don't, you don't break those rules. One of the things that stuck out to me when uh, George Stephanopoulos asks Fred Hyatt, you know, can we afford to ru- rupture the relationship with Saudi Arabia over this? Whenever I hear questions like that, I'm like, listen, Saudi Arabia was the aggressor in this point. They're the ones who ruptured the relationship with the U.S. The U.S. responding to their aggression, that is not rupturing the relationship. It's like, you did this, Saudi Arabia. You did it proactively. You were not provoked by the United States to make this choice. So I I just, whenever I see that, where they're like, oh, you know, we, we can't respond to this this aggressor, because that will rupture the relationship. It's like, no, their aggression is responsible for that. So, Naomi, what section would you like to talk about?
0: Well, since we were talking about Jen Psaki, I think I'd want to talk about her interview on Fox News Sunday. This interview stood up to me with Jen Psaki and Chris Wallace, because it just honestly just seemed like a conversation of two extremely competent people who don't necessarily agree. And <laughs> those are my favorite.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and
1: I, I don't know why, but I just have this image of, you know, in those uh, in movies, sometimes there's like someone who's great at sword fighting. And then suddenly they come up against someone who's just as good as them. And they're like meeting each, o- each other's every move.
0: I think you're talking about the princess bride when the man in black stumbles upon Inigo Montoya. Just saying.
1: It's funny you say that because actually as I described it, I realized I'm not thinking of a sword fight right now. I'm thinking of the scene in Rush Hour Two. No. Yes. That's not what
0: you're thinking. You're yes. thinking of the Princess Bride.
1: Where Jackie Chan comes face to face with face to face with Don Cheadle, and they both have all the same moves because they were taught by the same person.
0: My story example is better. But <laughs> It's true. I mean, Jen Psaki is the man in black, is what I'm saying here, okay? She is ready for Chris Wallace's kind of probing questions. And I think she does a good job of bringing a smidge of detail, a smidge of data to really justify her answer. So take a listen to this conversation. In the first question, you're going to hear Chris Wallace ask Press Secretary Jen Psaki about the price tag of the COVID relief bill that has just been passed in the House.
10: President Biden has taken to asking critics of his COVID relief bill, what would you cut? The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office says that more than one third of the total bill. $700 billion would not be spent this year, but would be spent between 2022 and 20, 20, uh, 2031. So how does that qualify as COVID relief?
9: Well, first, Chris, the focus of the package is getting direct checks to the American people, getting vaccines in the arms of Americans, and ensuring uh, that people who need help at this very difficult time can get it. But people also have to plan. Schools have to plan to reopen. They need to do budgetary planning over the course of years. Businesses need to do that as well. So this package is meant to, of course, provide immediate direct relief, but also provide a bridge to help us all get through this crisis.
1: Actually, I really liked hearing that because it was a point that I heard from Republicans saying that the bill was not targeted enough towards this year. And so it's interesting to hear Jen Psaki's answer on that.
0: Well, interesting that you say Republicans are questioning that because Chris Wallace was also questioning that. Take a listen to the follow-up. But
10: let's take one specific area that you just mentioned, schools. The bill would give $170 billion to schools from elementary through college, but the CBO, projects that 95% of that money, again, won't be spent this year, but will be spent from 2022 through 2028. And and let me drill down even further. $480 million uh, of the COVID relief bill, according to the CBO, would go to the arts, humanities, museums, libraries. Again, what does that have to do with emergency COVID relief and getting kids back into school this year?
9: Well, first of all, uh, the, the 90% of this package goes to address the twin crises we're facing right now, Chris, which is getting the pandemic under control and helping the American people go back to work, helping them get the relief they need to get through this period of time. Schools are like businesses, Chris. They need to budgetary plan over a period of time. Some have to front load changes, whether it's to their facilities or ensuring that if they have to hire additional teachers or bus or bus drivers at this but, but point, but we're in time talking about a, de- we're talking safe, about a decade from now. Sensing, that, well, they have to plan over the period of time. I'm sure I don't want my kids to be going to school where they have to fire teachers next year or won't have to be able to do the facilities up, uh, facility upgrades, I should say, necessary in order to ensure they're going to school safely. That's exactly what is included
0: in this package.
10: Uh, let me turn to another subject about the bill.
0: So I was really surprised here that Chris Wallace didn't continue. I was surprised that he didn't kind of really push back on maybe there was other parts beyond schools where the money would likely get spent outside of this current budget year. But I think Jensaki, I'm just guessing, I'm not for sure certain, but I think Jensaki just does a really good job here. One to dispel with the idea that the whole package has questionable money like this. She's, you know, makes, reiterates multiple times that 90% of the package has no issues. And then she talks about, you know, in schools, like any other business, like any other functioning place of work, people have to make accommodations and have to plan for it and have to budget it and have to know how they're gonna pay for it. You know, making it personal to say she hopes teachers aren't fired at her child's school or she hopes that they can make the infrastructure investments they need to. Like That's the type of stuff, that's the type of messaging that really gets into your brain and that you remember.
1: Right. I mean, people don't just want a Band-Aid. They want a solution. They want, you know, it's one thing to buy a bunch of plastic things that are going to break in, you know, six months. But that's not the type of school we want, right? I mean, we want to invest in things that have a value beyond just one year. We don't want throwaway solutions. And that's what I feel like some people are arguing related to this. Although I will say, not that Chris Wallace is doing that. Chris Wallace is doing an outstanding job digging deep down into what is going on with this bill. Why is it so big? What is in it? What could be taken out of it? Who even put some of these things in there? Why were they thinking? What what was the thinking around this stuff? He wants to have a deep discussion about these details. And I, I definitely applaud it. And I wish that there was more of it.
0: Yeah, I <laughs> I think it's fascinating. I, I kind of wish, I'm, I'm not surprised that Genzaki's not defending the money for arts because it's just something that can be manipulated so quickly. But who has gone to a play, to a dance show, to any live performance? Like to think that the arts industry is not... Hemorrhaging right now and might need federal support if we want to keep artists in their chosen career path. Like it's just, <laughs> I'm surprised we're not giving more money, I guess, is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the arts is, is, is huge. I mean, we are, we dominate the world, uh, global exports of art, storytelling, music.
0: Yeah. I, I heard a story on. KCRW, which is one of the NPR affiliates here in L.A., and they were talking about just how devastating the job losses have been in the entertainment industry. Right.
1: An industry that employs tons of people more than just the quote-unquote artists.
0: Right. Exactly. Brutal. Just totally brutal.
1: It's almost like saying, oh, well, why would you put money towards tech? You know, those engineers, they just waste all their time and energy. But it's like, okay, you might not like engineers, but what about the people who manufacture, who sell, who produce, who transport, who distribute? Like the tech industry is so much bigger than just the people who write the code or just the people who build, you know, who design it. Right. So to talk about the arts as if it's just artists, you know, doing their artsy thing. And there's, you know, there aren't who's going to be successful as an artist in this world. But,
0: <laughs> but look, I appreciate that your snooty accent's English.
1: Yes. But it's like some people will. It's like saying sports, right? The sports employs so many more people than the people who are right. just the players. Right. I mean, that's such a Good pedestrian call. argument Ooh. to assume that the arts is Speaking only the artist. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I don't disagree. Brendan, did you have something political to discuss?
1: Well, yeah, it's related to COVID relief, and it's great to hear from Chris Wallace some of the things that I felt were lacking so profoundly from the two programs that I look at, looked at. So I want to talk about COVID relief, but mostly I want to talk about what was missing from the discussion. And by doing, to do that, I want to begin with what was in the discussion. So I'm going to begin with one clip of framing the discussion, one clip from an interview with a Democrat and one clip from an interview with a Republican. And then we'll regroup to discuss what that was all about and what was missing. So to begin, here is John Carl from this week. They started this week, not with an interview, but with a
4: brief discussion related to COVID relief. John, let me begin with you right now. That vote in the House on the president's COVID relief package about as close as it could get. There's no votes to spare in the Senate where the Democrats are now wrestling with how to handle that stripping of the
3: $15 minimum wage from the bill. Good morning, George. Biden is on the verge of his first major legislative victory and make no mistake, this would be a really big one, but there is absolutely no room for error. The COVID relief bill passed in the House, as you mentioned, without a single Republican vote. There are almost certainly no Republican votes in the Senate either. And that means he can't afford to lose a single Democrat. Thanks to the ruling by the Senate parliamentarian, the provision raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour is not in the bill. But with two Democrats opposed to it, the $15 minimum wage doesn't appear to have 50 votes regardless.
1: So John Carl goes on to explain that he expects that the bill will pass and will be a tremendous success, or notched as one, by the Biden administration. So that's John Carl's framing very much focused on whether the bill is going to be passed whether it's up whether it's down and what we can expect here is Jen Saki being questioned by Dana bash about the bill and how much Democrats worked with Republicans on it
8: so he's definitely had discussions with Republicans but but and he's heard their concerns so is he uh, mm-hmm. is he open to actually acting on that and changing his proposal changing the legislation to address those concerns.
9: He's been open from the beginning. There's been more targeting of the direct checks. Uh, he has not been willing to negotiate on the size of the checks, but there has been a targeting to ensure that it, it hits the Americans who need that help that help the most. That's an idea that has come up in meetings with Democrats and Republicans, and he's certainly open to hearing from their ideas. What he will not do, though, is make this a Washington political partisan issue and prevent uh, the American people from getting the relief they need. So this,
1: And then here is a question to Senator Rob Portman, Republican senator from the state of Ohio on this week, speaking with George Stephanopoulos related to Republicans using the same mechanism as Democrats for other bills to try to get something passed when they don't have support from the
4: other side. Senator Portman, thanks for joining us this morning. I do want to start with the COVID relief bill. Uh, you've said that the passing this through the reconciliation process would poison the well of bipartisanship, but you voted to pass the Trump tax cuts and repeal the uh, Obamacare through the reconciliation process. So why, so why isn't it right for the Democrats to do this now?
10: George, you were just talking about the difficulties of passing this legislation. There's an easy answer to this, which is, let's make it bipartisan. I mean, COVID relief has never been a partisan issue. Over the last year, we've passed five bills, as you know, with overwhelming bipartisan margins. In fact, there are a bunch of us Republicans. I was one of the, the 10 Republicans who went to see the president a few weeks ago and said, let's negotiate. You know, we've done this five times before. We can do it again. So this is not like taxes or health care. This is COVID relief, which has always been a bipartisan issue. Okay,
1: so the point I'm trying to make is what was the point of some of those conversations? Well, like we mentioned in the beginning, John Carl was talking about where the bill is. Is it going to be passed? Isn't Isn't it going to be passed? And what does this mean for the Biden administration? Jen Saki, we saw discussions with her from Dana Bash, questions related to whether there's cooperation with Republicans on this bill and how open they are to changing it. And then with Rob Portman, we heard questions about, you know, isn't this bill, isn't it okay the way Democrats are, are proceeding with this bill, you know, through their parliamentary procedures? Because you Republicans have used the same procedures, right? Almost all of these questions are not, actually about what's in the bill they're about where the bill is what's holding things up how it was put together they're not about the bill this it's about the state of things but not what makes it different from other bills so these are i want to call these types of questions and these types of discussions they're like status updates they're like And I think we've used this metaphor before, or or this reference, it's almost like these conversations could be about any bill, right? If you can just slot any bill into these exact same questions, then you're not really going deep enough. They could be having the same conversations about an immigration bill. They could be having the same conversations about a bill related to tax reform. It doesn't matter. They're the same types of questions, the same types of conversations. Oh, are you working with the Republicans or this? Oh, are you, you know, is it really so bad that they tried to pass this tax reform bill with this parliamentary procedure versus that parliamentary procedure? And how likely is it to pass now versus later? And what does it mean if it passes? These are just stock Questions. They are stock conversations about any bill. They're not about this bill and what it means for the American people and why it freaking matters. And so that's my freaking frustration that so much of these conversations are on the surface and they are not about what this means and why it matters, and whether these policies are the best policies or not the best policies, or the appropriate policies or the inappropriate policies. That is my frustration, that we are having conversations way too frequently about important pieces of legislation that don't really talk about the legislation.
0: This is really interesting because I think the other piece is there's not enough comparison to... Other bills, other packages, history, it kind of right. like exists in the ether. and there's all these interviews aimed to help us understand how we're supposed to feel about it, but in relation to what? right. It's like it it's
1: almost like the only interesting thing that these shows think exist about the bill is whether it gets passed or not. It reminds me of our conversations and our frustrations around election coverage which are who's pulling up and who's pulling down, who's ahead, who's behind. You know, people call this the horse race discussion, right? But there is a real lack of detail on the issues, on the character of the candidates, on all these things when it it comes to these Sunday shows. They become one-dimensional discussions. You're either ahead or you're behind. There's only one dimension, it's a straight line. the bill is gonna pass or it's not gonna pass? How close is it to being there? They're not two-dimensional, they're not three-dimensional conversations. So what types of conversations should we have? What types of questions should we be asking? Not only to these guests, but as a news organization, they should be asking, okay, you wanna talk about partisanship in terms of the support of this bill? Well, how about we have a conversation about how likely or unlikely it is to have a bill with only partisan support? You know, Have there been similar bills like this in recent history? Well, actually, there have. Go back in time. Look at what happened the last time we had a huge economic crisis on our hands. Oh, my God. There was an incoming Democratic president named Barack Obama. The vice president happened to be Joe Biden. It was very recent. There was a relief bill for the economy. And did it have only partisan support? In fact, it did only have partisan support. The Republicans didn't vote for it. Not one vote. Not a single one. So we could go back in time. We could look at the history here. We could ask if this is strange, if this is not strange, why is this happening in our politics right now? And the final set of questions that I think are really, really missing from this discussion is questions related to the last COVID relief bills. This will be, I think, the fifth one. What happened with those other bills? Did they stimulate the economy? Were they successful? Where did they fall short? What did people say about them? Did the things that we heard people say about them on your very own Sunday show, did those come to pass? Were those true? Are they untrue? Have we learned anything? That's the type of conversation that we should be demanding from these Sunday shows, framing it with intelligent discussion and then letting that lead your questions rather than just, is it gonna be passed? Is it not gonna be passed? Rather than the same old stock questions that we seem to see for every major piece of legislation. It's boring. It's boring. Naomi, what stood out to you in journalism?
0: So what stood out to me is an interview that Margaret Brennan had with Republican Governor Christine Noam. She's the governor of South Dakota. And wow, Margaret Brennan did not come here to waste anyone's time. It was such an important interview. There were several components of this interview that I think made it effective. First and foremost, as always, Margaret Brennan has very effective pushback and she uses a lot of data and comparisons to contextualize her questions. And that makes it really hard for Governor Noem to try to wiggle her way out. Take a listen to this first clip when Margaret Brennan asks the governor about the death rate in South Dakota.
2: As of today, the CDC says your state has the eighth highest death rate per capita in the U.S. That's a rate of deaths per 100,000 residents. Don't you think your decisions as an executive contributed? You know, South Dakota's infection rate peaked
6: earlier than a lot of other places in the country. So we're definitely on the downward trend, uh, and earlier, and peaked earlier than what you're seeing happen across the country as well. You know, you can talk about masks. We can talk about mitigation measures. All of that. Uh, what These were I'm CDC numbers as of today. And it was is the death rates rate. that would tell people that what they have to do i want people to make those decisions for themselves and we've seen the cdc change recommendations over and over and over again in fact we've seen them do it just based on political pressure Uh, we follow the science the data Mm -hmm. and the facts in south dakota to make our decisions and it's been incredibly helpful to make sure that we're taking care of people who need it when they get sick
2: i was asking you about the death rate as of today according to Mm -hmm. the cdc not the infection rate which you're talking about wow
1: it's rare that we hear a guest, not literally not acknowledge that they're being asked another question.
0: Right. And I think Margaret Brennan here is doing something really important because Noam's talking about COVID, but she's not talking about the metric in which Margaret Brennan has originally asked her about. And Margaret Brennan has a follow up question trying to understand why her numbers in South Dakota are so much worse.
6: Our state peaked earlier than other states, than his state, than New York, than California. Uh, They certainly are seeing much higher infection rates, much higher hospitalization rates, and much higher deaths today than, than we are. And that's really how we've seen this virus spread across the country. What I'd like to know, Margaret, is why are do, are you asking Cuomo these questions? Are you talking to Newsom about these questions? When and how both of those governors accept an invitation to come on this program,
2: and I hope they did, do, madam, I really hope they say yes, and I really appreciate that you did to our invitation. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm asking yeah, about your state. They have not said yes. So for your state, you have, if you look at starting mm-hmm. in July, which was after that spring peak, you have the highest death rate cumulative COVID deaths per million in the country. The CDC says you have the eighth highest death rate per capita now. I'm not talking about infection rates. I know you're a conservative and you care about the sanctity of life. So how can you justify making decisions that put the health of your constituents at risk?
6: And those are questions that you should be asking every other governor in this country as well. I'm uh, the asking region you today, that Madam, South Dakota's our, our, in. You're facing I'm the nation. answering you. I'm answering you, Margaret. I'm answering you. Regionally, uh, we have seen the virus hit the country very differently and it hit the Midwest earlier than it did the South and now the East Coast and the West Coast. So we are still dealing with this virus in this country. South Dakota went through our highest rate of infections and implications earlier. The rest of the country is dealing with it much higher numbers today. And that's really what this means. What we should be looking at is, did the mitigation measures help? Uh, Did mandating uh, different Mm -hmm. actions in each of these states make a difference?
1: I feel like I just want to ask her directly, do you believe in the premise that decisions you make as governor have an impact, either positive or negative, in the COVID infection and death rate? Do you believe you have any role to play? Because she has not indicated as much as a governor. (laughs)
0: Well, I have one more example that I wasn't sure if I was going to show, but I guess I will because it's kind of going to what you were seeking. But before we do that, I just, these are really, I think what's really telling here is Margaret Brennan can hold a tone. She can follow through on a question and probe in different, like she probes differently than I think the other guests do and tries to make it personal so that people, People feel compelled to answer. And at the same time, I think she does it in a way that brings a lot of validity to the office that they hold, right? She's not asking some random person from South Dakota. She's asking the governor. And she's like, as governor, you have a lot of authority and this is what you decided to do. Help us understand that. And that approach makes it a lot more Difficult to dismiss her, and I think that a to pr- dismiss Margaret, Margaret Brennan, Brennan, right? And I think it makes it it makes answers like what Noam is doing, but others when they don't answer her. I'm thinking specifically Pompeo, particularly disrespectful. So this last clip is going to be that question that you were seeking, Brennan, trying to understand if. She takes any responsibility, she being Governor Noam takes any responsibility for what has happened in her state. Let's talk about that,
2: because there is a 12 billion dollar price tag that has been pegged to the impact of and fallout from that Sturgis motorcycle rally that you hosted in your state in August. It is blamed for seeding the entire Midwest outbreak that hit in that late summer through the fall. Do you take personal responsibility for that?
6: Well, that is completely false information that is not This is not the San true, Diego State University study and it is not based on facts. We tracked uh, people that came to the rally, had states report back to us cases that came from that rally. Um, It was less than 100 cases that we could track to that, and we did testing in that community and throughout the area for weeks after. Listen, what we did was allow people to make decisions for themselves. We gave them all the information on this virus, how to protect their health, and then we allowed them to make decisions on what they would do. My question is, if we had mandated that people had to stay home, if we had mandated that businesses had to be closed, would that have made a difference? And I would argue that it wouldn't have, that we allowed people to make these decisions. President Trump's COVID best-
2: czar, Dr. Burke, said, if those people who had attended Sturgis, if they'd gone home wearing masks, that it would have actually saved lives. She said that on this program. But how do you justify the death of, of your constituents though? And, and when you talk about personal responsibility, which I know is a, a value you talk a lot about, when your personal choices put others at risk, isn't that the opposite of responsible?
6: It's been an incredibly challenging year for so many people. And, and everyone across this country has knows someone who we have lost to this virus. Uh, I think we need to examine the actions that we've taken and see if it has uh, allowed people to make decisions and honored our rights and our freedoms in this country in a way that respects what makes America special.
1: I think she started reading a bumper sticker that was driving by there. I think she missed the question. Wow.
0: Yeah. So. Other governors, take note, Margaret Brennan wants to interview you and she will rip you apart if you don't answer her questions. I think it's... I'm being harsher. She will hold you accountable. Yeah, it's
1: interesting. You know, clearly Margaret Brennan finds it outrageous that, that some of the decisions were made that seemed to be made in South Dakota that had led to these terrible, terrible outcomes. I do think there was a bit of a tone, as you said to the interview, where Margaret Brennan talked about, you know, do you take responsibility for these deaths, right? I think there definitely could have been other ways to get at the questions that might have, and maybe there's no way to break through the the, the shell that Noam presented there. However, I don't know that that, I don't want to I don't know that, that, that those, those word choices in particular were going to really do it. You know what I'm saying? Does that make any sense? You think Margaret Brennan went too far? I don't think that she went too far. I think her data was great. I think her setup was great. I think her questions overall were great. I think some of her characterizations, however, where she's like, do you take responsibility for those deaths, right? Rather than saying, what responsibility do you think leaders have? Or do you think that, do you have any lessons learned that you would have? Is there anything you could have done that you think could have reduced the number of deaths in your state?
0: Okay, I mean, I don't disagree with everything you're saying, but I do think it's important that she asks specifically on the decisions that Noah made in South Dakota. And I think it's important to keep in mind as a viewer that this is a governor who doesn't seem to mind the loss in her state. Right. And I think that is what is truly underscored.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yes. I guess I'm looking at this last question where Margaret Brennan asks at the beginning of the clip that we just played, do you take personal responsibility for that, the outbreak, right? And it makes me actually think of the way John Dickerson would sometimes work these questions. And he might begin by saying, do you believe that a governor is personally responsible right, for, uh, you know, in principle, personally responsible for the decisions made within their office. And you know, someone might say, "Oh yeah, sure, absolutely."
0: So then why did you do that? So it?
1: so then do you take personal responsibility for the decision you made that led to this, right? He'll he'll kind of like lead the politician down the road and then bam, hit them with that Dickersonian question that's like, "Oh, you were laying the groundwork the whole time." Exactly. To 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 do this. And you've already committed them to agreeing with your premise.
0: Just very interesting strategy in Margaret Brennan's interview style, for sure.
1: Yeah, there was a a, a fascinating profile, an extended interview with her that we just read this week. Yeah, Um, we can
0: include it in the show notes today. Yep,
1: yep, where she kind of talks about her approach. Excellent. So that takes us to show ratings. I think I'll start us off briefly by saying that I believe that of the two shows i looked at this week definitely stood out and had a lot more standout moments to me than state of the union although that's not to say that they were the best moments uh, i think overall i will say this week probably gets about a seven i'd say state of the union because i really like the piece at the end i'd say State of the union probably instead maybe i think they're both sevens really they weren't amazing they weren't terrible
0: Yeah, I think I would say Face the Nation had a really, really strong episode. She also talked to Rona McDaniel, Congressman Kittinger, and somebody else, really looking at the future of the Republican Party. And I thought the different kind of schools of thought around the Republican Party were actually really interesting to hear from directly. On Meet the Press, I think I would give it a six. Yeah. The more I think about it, the more I think I'd be a six. There were definitely some really glaring gaps in terms of sufficient conversations and thorough conversations. And then on Fox News Sunday, I think I would give it, I think I would give it a seven. There were some questions that I didn't necessarily agree with. I think there was an interview specifically with Senator Warner that I thought wasn't necessarily fair. But overall, I think... The show did a good job of picking a few topics it wanted to cover well and focusing on those. Outstanding. And for our dialogue challenge this week, I would encourage our listeners to think about how they maintain a tone or hold a tone in a conversation that they're having when someone is trying to take it somewhere else. Right. Sometimes you're mm-hmm. having a conversation and you're like trying to explain something or are kind of in a curious state and maybe they're in an angry state. And how do you keep the conversation to be in a curious state? Or maybe it's kind of going to, I don't know, the angle of an issue or Story. You know what I mean? It's just it, you see it kind of. Yes, it's slipping shifting. through your hands. Yeah. You're like, wait, 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 this isn't what we were talking about. And of course, you know, good dialogue is between two parties. And so hopefully the other party wants to stay or is interested in staying where you want to stay. But it's an interesting challenge to think about, like, how do you slowly bring it back?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, just stop and say, oh, OK, well. I thought we were talking about this. Can we talk a little bit about this? And then we'll move on to that other thing.
0: Oh, that's more honest and <laughs> direct. And direct than my you can think about which way is more natural for you. Yeah. So all right. Well if you have any thoughts about any of the shows we talked about or anything else, you can always email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Soto Naomi underscore.
1: You can follow me at Beastidal and you can follow the show at Polylogcast.
0: Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. Talk with you then. Bye. Bye.